Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. God brings the world into conjunction in Christ, with Christ, conformed to Christ, taken up in Christ. That's, that's our big picture of history. You can recognize that who you are is not who you thought you were choosing, but the people that have gifted you make it possible for you to have a life that otherwise would be impossible. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome back, podcast listeners. Oh my gosh, a new year. Can you believe it? Maybe you really, really can believe it. Maybe you don't know where the time has gone. I don't know. Usually I feel a little bit of both. In either case, I hope you had a lovely Christmas and a very happy epiphany to you. I'm fresh from holidaying in Florida with my family, and I'm glad to be here with you. I wanted to start off the year with a bang here at the podcast. This past September, I was invited to come to the Radical Vocation Conference at Church of the Incarnation in Dallas. That is the Radvo Conference for those who know and love her well. And I came to moderate a conversation between the Reverend Dr. Ephraim Radner and Dr. Stanley Hauerwas. It was such a memorable, beautiful conversation. I wanted to share it here with you today. I asked Stanley and Ephraim to reflect on the conference, to say what they were taking away from it, as well as what they wished that we'd had more time to consider together. The conference included some keynotes and conversations that we will reference in this conversation, including the Reverend Dr. Christopher Beely on Christology, Dr. Jeremy Begbie on the Holy Spirit and the Arts, Dr. John Baer on the Church, the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren on Christianity and Politics, and other panels on church unity and evangelism with so many amazing guests. I would strain the length of this intro if I read them all. In my conversation with Ephraim and Stanley about ministry in the church today and ministry into the future, we went wonderfully off book, deep into the territory of attention, politics, martyrdom. Stanley Hauerwas is Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law at Duke Divinity School and was named America's Best Theologian by Time Magazine in 2001. If you had been named America's Best Theologian, don't you think you'd spend like the rest of your life trying to figure out what that meant? I know I would. <laughs> I sometimes wonder what he thinks about that title. Anyway, and his book, A Community of Character Toward a Constructive Christian Social Ethic, was selected as one of the 100 most important books on religion in the 20th century. And then, of course, I'm also talking to Ephraim Radner, who is Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology at Wycliffe College in Toronto, a lovely school, and has ministered in various places, including Burundi, Haiti, Inner City Cleveland, Connecticut, and Colorado. His many books include Hope Among the Fragments, which I know many of you have read, and one of my favorites, A Time to Keep, Theology, Mortality, and the Shape of a Human Life. Now, straighten your conference lanyard and settle in for a 2023 conversation on ministry 
that offers challenge and hope for 2024 and maybe beyond. We hope you enjoy the conversation. The focus on unity might have offered more of a um, engagement with the world in which we find ourselves. If it's the first task of the church to be the church in a way that the world is the world, the interesting question then could be, what's the second task of the church? (laughs) So that's something that I need to to pay up on, is what is the second task of the church. Of course, I have the reputation for being anti-Constantinian in terms of the developments of Christian social witness. People accuse me of withdrawal. I always say, hell, I would be ready to withdraw, but there's no place to go. We're surrounded. Um, And as surrounded people, uh, when Sam Wells was thinking about coming to Duke to be dean of the cathedral, uh, it's a cathedral, but Methodists call it a chapel. (laughs) When he was thinking about coming to Duke, we were walking by Duke Memorial, and I said, that's the church that Constantine built. Use it. (laughs) How to negotiate the world in which we find ourselves, in which we can use what's uh, left for us, I think is part of the imaginative challenge uh, before us. One of the things then I thought that could have been done a bit more is to show how Christian unity and disunity gives us a sense of the world in which we are finding ourselves. Namely, it works as a hermeneutic. I think we live in a very dangerous time. The world in which liberal Protestantism created in the name of democracy has come unstuck. And that has everything to do with the production of people who have gotten the habits of what I call liberal formation, which is that they believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story. That's the people that we've produced, and that's called freedom in America. It's a story that grips all of our lives. And I can show it this way. Do you think you ought to be held to a promise you made when you didn't know what you were doing? Most of us don't think we should be held to promises we made when we didn't know what we were doing. And, and that's, that's the institution that's producing the story that you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. Of course, the problem with that is it makes marriage unintelligible. How would you know what you did when you promised lifelong monogamous fidelity? I mean, that, that's why the church wants you to have your vows witnessed in front of the congregation because we're going to hold you to promises you made when you didn't know what you were doing. (laughs) If it makes marriage unintelligible, it makes having children completely off the charts. (laughs) You never never get the ones you you want. Those Those are the kinds of discriminations that you make when the church is working for its own sense of unity in a way that helps us know how to have children. So I thought those kinds of edgy um, ways of the church's stance via the world might have been a bit more emphasized in kinds of uh, discussions we had uh, as part of this way to attract folks and the possibility of going into the ministry. 
Good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Stanley. Ephraim. Yeah, thank you. And I want to sort of echo a number of things Stanley has said. First of all, positively, I found, Stanley mentioned Christology, but you know, the, the, the Christological, pneumatological scope of what was presented at this conference was cosmic in its dimensions. I think that's pretty important to understand for anybody who's thinking about what their, what their calling is as, as a priest and as a church. We're talking about everything. We're not talking about just this place or this. And, and we've just come from a wonderful uh, discussion about evangelism. Evangelism isn't about just me. It's not about me and Jesus. It's not just about my life. It's about what is really real. It's about the whole thing. And if we cannot understand our callings as ministers and priests and Christians in general as being tied to the whole kit and caboodle of what it means to be a human being and where the whole universe is going, we've lost the whole... I mean, people aren't going to listen. Many people won't listen, even if they're not thinking about it. The intuition, and this is part of this strange place Stanley has just said we're in, where things are falling apart around us. Think about climate change itself. If we are unable to actually understand the gospel in terms of this whole thing, I'm not sure that the resonance is going to be nearly as great as many people unconsciously at least are yearning for. So I think it's good that we laid it out that way. You can't be a priest unless you have the whole thing that you're called into as gods. I also think Stanley's right in terms of missing something. He said the Old Testament. I, I would go further and say Israel. Didn't hear about Israel. I, I blame myself. We had a whole scriptural discussion yesterday, and I don't think I mentioned it, and I'm committed to it committed to Israel being understood at the center of this whole thing I just talked about, and certainly the church's life. All these discussions we've had about unity and division and difference and so on, it's not so much that Israel answers and resolves all of that. It's all given there. Mm -hmm. It's all displayed there. It illuminates everything. And part of that, of course, is, you know, uh, people have different views about the relationship between the Christ and Israel. Of course, the Christ is the Messiah. People have different views. I happen to have a view of the relationship of, of uh, Christ uh, and Israel as utterly, or the church in Israel as utterly intimate. Not everybody would agree with that, but whatever one thinks about it, it's close. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And what that simply means is that to understand who we are serving as our Lord, we have to know who he is the Messiah of. <laughs> That's Israel. And more than that, he is Israel in some mysteriously incarnate, embodied sense. That's, that's Isaiah uh, in the 50s and so on. He is the servant who is Israel. So that is a, I think that's a tremendous challenge theologically right now. And again, I should have said yesterday as we talked about Anglicanism in the scriptures, actually Anglicanism has had a, a, a real commitment, not just to the Old Testament, but to Israel's life as not just illuminating Jesus's, but as being taken up in Jesus's. And that's, that's distinct from many other Christian traditions, in fact. The greatest English language preacher, I think, was John Donne. And John Donne's preaching uh, was half of it was on the Old Testament in a way that is just fantastically rich and not just elaborate, but profound. To know who God is for John Donne was to read the Old Testament and to understand it as, 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 as lived with in, in Jesus. So anyway, the way I would put it, um, just to move quickly, God, and this goes with things that Dr. Baer was talking about and, and, and Dr. Beely and everybody, Dr. Begbie as well, when he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, God brings the world into conjunction in Christ, with Christ, conformed to Christ, taken up in Christ. That's, that's our big picture of history. It's 
It's manifested in the gospel, but it's described in Israel. <laughs> that movement is described in Israel. So that to see the divisions of the church, to see the struggles for unity, is to look at how Jesus takes Israel into himself. And as, as, as Tish talked about, what we get out of that is not this grand structure of political resolution. We get Jesus and the cross. That's light. <laughs> Israel shows us the light who Jesus is. That's not easy, but take, take something like 1 Peter. 1 Peter was the Bible study focus for the last Lambeth Conference. There was a whole Bible study put together for it. I had the privilege to be part of putting together that Bible study. So I know what, you know, with a lot, with a lot of other people, people from around the world, was fascinating. First Peter is challenging. That's meant to be the Christian life. That's the light of the world that the church is, is described in First Peter. First Peter 2 is all the Old Testament. You get Israel... <laughs> taken up in the church, which is manifested in Jesus Christ, right there, 1 Peter 2. And that was meant to be the guide for the bishops of Lambeth, for the Anglican communion. I'm not sure what anybody did with it. That's neither here nor there, but it's a calling. And you think about what's said there. I would say every priest or priest-to-be should read 1 Peter 2 and say, what does this mean about my calling as a priest in the church that I'm gonna live in. And, you know, back to Stanley's point about the world that we live in, in a dangerous time where so many things are falling apart, that's First Peter also. What does it look like? And it doesn't look like a lot of things we have thought in the past, in a time of we thought, you know, Jenny mentioned affluence and relative stability and so on. It doesn't look like that. But that is Jesus. And that is taken up in Israel. I'll stop right there for now. But. Well, I think that there's this beautiful connection between what you both have, your initial remarks, and I hear in what Stanley shared, the, the urgent questions that have not been yet addressed or asked that are being presented to us that we need to have the courage to look at and address and ask. And then what I'm hearing from you, Ephraim, is that in some ways, the story has already been told and is there for us. I would like to remain on Jesus for a moment. Christ on the cross shows us the completed human we heard in Dr. Bear's talk. If the church is not completely transparent to the death and resurrection of the Messiah, we are not preaching the gospel at all. And that was Christopher Beely quoting Ramsey. So where do you think we're doing a heroic job of forming men and women to preach this gospel? And where are we missing the point or leaving leaders with some dangerously weak muscles? One of the things I was hoping in the evangelism panel, which by the way, I thought was the best thing at the conference. I loved it. Thank you all. But one thing I was hoping I didn't hear, and I'm really expecting to hear it, was that famous trope about evangelism, which everybody has heard, maybe that's why it wasn't mentioned, of D.T. Niles, the Indian Christian. What is, what is evangelism? One beggar telling another beggar where there's a great catch of fish. And it's the notion of our understanding that we are beggars in this world, to, which, to whom God gives this abundant gift, but we're still beggars. That's the only way we can receive it. So going back to where does this happen, it happens in lots of places. It happens when we talk about the communion, it obviously happens in parts of the world where being a beggar, if you will, is in flesh in a very obvious way, which is all over the place. Pakistan. I mean, I, a little church I go to in, in Toronto has a Pakistani family. We've been always, I mean, Christians for several generations. And, you know, it's like every other week I hear from him, the, the, the grandfather, 
they just did so-and-so back there with the church in the village with this person. Pray for them. Pray for my nephew. Pray for so-and-so and so forth. And I'm thinking, you know, these, are, these are the beggars within the, if you will, within the civil society of Pakistan who are the Christians. And they're just trying to worship. They're just trying to worship. Well, they understand what worship of the living God in Christ Jesus entails, okay? But there are other people all over the place. Um, I mean, one of the problems in our society, Jenny, Bishop Jenny mentioned affluence, but part of affluence is also the, the, the ability to buffer, buffer the experience the, the exposed vulnerability of ourselves. You know, I talk about, I've written about mortality, but that's just a big word for lots of things that go into being a human being. And we, those vulnerabilities are exposed for every single one of us at some point. And the place where the church is willing to be with that and speak into that, the church, us, is the place where then the gospel is displayed, uncovered. You know, and that is in hospitals. That's also with our children. Right now, you know, we've talked about the nihilism and so on of our, of our era, the loss of a story. This is, every young person is facing, in, in America, we'll say, this affluent society, an emptiness of not knowing what to do with themselves, with their bodies. <laughs> with the fact that they know that they are vulnerable, utterly. And there are people willing to talk about that and to speak to that. But it's not a program. This is the place where we go. If we can't, by the way, if, if we've, the church that has lost young people has, has old people who are vulnerable and, and, and can speak to. But it's also lost the place now where this story that nobody knows needs to be spoken with the utmost clarity and honesty. So those churches that are working with young people, especially the young people who don't want to have anything to do with the church, are, are the places where, that's another place in the West, where I think the church is showing the gospel with the deepest light on his heart. I'll, I'll stop. I'm, I'm, Stanley has things he probably wants to say. I, um, I think what the focus on the cross should teach us is how, what an adequate job we've done training Christians. Basically, they have been shaped by individualistic accounts of the atonement, which underwrite sacrificial accounts of the crucifixion in ways that um, reproduce individualistic accounts of salvation that depoliticize that this is a group of people shaped by the cross of the Son of God to save the world from our violence and hatreds. The evangelistic emphasis on satisfaction theories of the atonement are just killing us and how to reconstitute what it means to be a people who are shaped by worship of a crucified God is something we're not quite sure how to do. Do you think that's right? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think one of the, speaking about sort of looking at unity, people have dealt with, the, the church is not united. People have dealt, and it hasn't been in lots of places, and it's that disunity and division has been embodied in violence and murder for centuries. Less so today than in the past, but certainly. But people have dealt with that in different ways, and one way is to say that we really are united. Who brought this up spiritually? Not, I think, out of Jeremy Begbie. You know, not to worry, because we're spiritually united. So we don't have to worry about the bodies that are involved in our divisions. Another way is, that's related to the satisfaction thing is, is it's all made good already. I mean, 
which we do want to affirm in some fashion, but it's all made good such that we don't actually have to live what the making good is about, which is the cross. We don't actually have to, that's not what we're called into, that's what we look at and hold up as the answer to all this other stuff. I am going to die without any of my fondest hopes for unity fulfilled. And I'm no different than anybody else, but you know, in my own work, the Episcopal Church will still be disunited and divided with ACNA. Maybe not, but my guess is it will be. And divided between liberal and conservative in the sorts of ways that it has. Roman Catholics and Protestants are not going to be sharing communion still. The Eastern Orthodox and Catholics and so on and so forth. Anglican communion, who knows. But I'm no different than anybody else in this regard. Basil the Great died <laughs> with, with Arianism or whatever, still in control of the episcopacies of his churches. Chrysostom died walking along whatever it was, the hills of the Black Sea in exile. Cranmer, we know what happened to him, Luther, and so on. The point here isn't that nothing gets better. The point here is that the light of the gospel is at work in entering into that. There is light there. But that's the light of the crucifixion. And if you don't, if that's not at the center of what we do, there is no light at all. One of the ways to think about unity is you are able to love your enemy when your enemy's story becomes part of yours. And that's, that takes real negotiation over... It's wrenching. Right. It's wrenching. But you're, you're right. Would you mind giving, saying a little more about that or giving an example of when your enemy's story becomes part of yours? Well, it's probably like finally learning to love your mother. <laughs> without, without false idealizations that you can recognize that who you are is not who you thought you were choosing, but the people that have gifted you that make it possible for you to have a life that otherwise would be impossible. And that takes our capacity for self-deception is unlimited. And never trust a person that says without cost, I love you. That's taking and receiving another as gift. Yeah. One, one, I, I, I want to say about a bit about the dangerous time we're in. The dangerous time we're in is the production of people who believe they have should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story produces a loneliness that creates people who are dying and killing to have some kind of group identity. And the name for the name for that is fascism. And whether we're going to be ready to live in a world where that is reality that is uh, not far from the surface is one of the great challenges before us. In that sense, people achieving unity is a very bad thing. Mm. I'm glad you said that, Stanley. I, I would like to talk more about that, actually, because we now, as Dr. Bear pointed out, we now have an institutionalized church in many places, but without the scaffolding of imperial power, which is very interesting. So where does that leave us? But then we also have, in Western society, the failure of multiple political and ideological projects. And failure always leaves a vacuum that something rushes to fill. So where does a divided church need to stay awake in this vacuum and in the wake of, of these failures? 
Stanley, you've, you've already begun to address that, but I want to leave the floor open to either of you. I, I was listening to a lecture by David Hart recently, and he was asked a question about uh, Christianity in the current context, and he said, well, Christianity has never been very deep in America. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful comment by David. By that, what does he mean by not very deep? He means that it's not at all clear we know how to read the signs of the time in a way that shows that we don't use our when we talk about American Christianity. For, for years uh, at Duke, we've always had a course on American Christianity. I've always tried to get the course renamed as the Christian story of America. How to make the language of the faith do descriptive, powerful work is part of the challenge of helping Christians understand that we don't say as Christians our country we say, the country in which we find ourselves. Small verbal habits, but it can lead you into quite different worlds. Canadians always get pride themselves on being anti-American as a way of giving themselves cultural identity. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but as we discovered in one of the recent American elections, when it was taking place at exactly the same time as Canadian elections, all the Canadians tuned into the U.S. vice presidential debate instead of the one amongst their own premier, possible premiers. They found it far more interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's really limited government. <laughs> I, I, I want to bring up this question of the church's divisions in the midst of a perilous time and witness. I was, one of the things I was pleased about, if you will, pleased, I, I resonated with in many of the presentations this conference was either deliberate or eventually coming to a focus on martyrdom as being foundational to the life of the church. When we heard about Blandina and, and uh, of course, Jesus right at the center there, martyrdom is something that takes place non-institutionally. It is something that place, takes place non-denominationally. It is something that the Holy Spirit, which we heard about, leads people to right where they are joined to Christ. Um, and yet it's also the church's foundation in its wider embrace and unity. I don't think, though, and people have talked about this, martyrdom is also an easy word to toss about and has been in a sort of affluent uh, society which uh, doesn't particularly like evangelicals, maybe, or something, and you say, I'm being persecuted because, you know, I've been canceled on Facebook or something. But, but by no means is there this big chasm now in American society, North American society, and the possibility of true martyrdom. Don't, don't be fooled by that. Uh, I have a colleague in Canada, Charles Lewis, who's a journalist, a retired journalist, who became a Roman Catholic later in life, uh, very deeply so, and because of some of his own personal experiences, uh, was, if you will, converted to become a witness against medical-assisted uh, um, killing, dying, whatever. And he has written consistently about the parallels between today and Canada around these issues in the 19, late 30s and 40s, 1940s in Germany. And quite explicit parallels with what church leaders were both called to do and did in the face of euthanasia, National Socialist Nazi euthanasia programs, and many Christians who did nothing. It's chilling on the one hand, it's also inspiring on another. We are not, Stanley raised the term fascism. That again is an easy word that's been, been thrown about, but it's also one that has some real truth to it and depth to it 
in terms of what's, what's going on. In Canada, well over 10,000 people have been euthanized since the law was passed. They are pressing now. It's passed, the law's passed, they've held back its implementation to move that not just to the terminally ill or whatever, but to those with mental illnesses and to adolescents. You realize that? You're talking about loving your mother, learning to love your mother and learning what it means to have a gift uh, of life from someone that that may not be perfect and that you struggle with. It's just astonishing to me. I wish you hadn't brought it up, but I'll be, I'll be confessional there. My mother committed suicide when I was a teenager. And I've had a long time trying to figure out how to love her for that, right? And yet here I am in Canada in the face of a government, a civil government that is literally encouraging that we are not just allow, but that we facilitate the killing of people who are in pain, whatever it is, mental, physical, adolescent pain of some kind, however serious. But I'm gonna go back to that thing about learning the story of your enemy. I've also had friends who have actively assisted in medically assisted suicide. They're not Christians, but never mind, they're friends. And I've got to struggle with what do I say to them? How do I say it? What does it do going on inside of me as I'm thinking about personal relationships of my past? One thing it's done, it's done two things, although not in a resolved way for me. It's made me try to listen to them, <laughs> which has put me in touch more and more with my own past. Why would you do that to your own wife? And yet, it's not because you don't love her. I know that. You know, so what's going on there? But it's also pressed me to realize that I can't let put this aside. As a Christian, I cannot put this aside. This is not for somebody else to deal with. I've got to. And there's so much right now, given this place we're in, where we cannot put things aside. In the United States, I mean, I don't want to go into all the different things, so I'll step back. But this isn't just a place of tending our own little parish. We can't do that anymore. We never could. <laughs> it was a deception that we thought we could. I say, if in a hundred years, Christians are identified as people who don't kill their children are the elderly, we'll have done okay. Mm. Well, that was the early, at least at certain places and times, the reputation of the early church. And it wasn't without fruit. It wasn't an empty, empty statement that was made. I agree with you utterly. And never trust compassion in the world in which we find ourselves. Compassion kills in the name of saving people from suffering. It is. I mean, it just those few verbal suggestions means you're going to have to have a rich story. And we've got one. We just, we, we cannot allow reductionistic accounts of, I mean, what's, what's one of the most reductionistic accounts? God is love, and we ought to love one another. That's what the faith is. I've got better things to do. Thank you. I'd like to ask, <laughs> what more can you say? What more can you say? I'd like to ask one more question, and then we'll, we'll head right into Q&A with the audience. This isn't one I plan to ask, but I just, I keep returning to martyrdom that, that has come up so many times from people who did not discuss their notes with each other before presenting. A mark of martyrdom is also joy, which Jeremy Begbie brought out in his presentation, praise, joy and praise. As I think of being willing to embrace the cross of Jesus, really, and being willing to suffer for one another in a divided church. 
and the fruits of the Holy Spirit that pour out of a life and pour into a life that's lived that way. This room is packed with people who maybe would love to know how to become that kind of person and to form those kinds of people, although not everyone who's in your church wants to be a martyr. Everyone's clear on that. What is one thing that you would say, ah, my heart would be so warmed to see the leaders of the church do this in their positions of leadership or, or receive this from the Lord? I don't know quite how to put it, the, the, the call to action there, but what's one thing that you would say, you would praise God if you saw this happening to form a people ready for martyrdom? Well, martyrdom, of course, is witness. And why do you need a witness when you can just tell someone what you think? You need a witness because the figure that determines what it means to say this is the truth is a, is a human being. His name was Jesus. And martyrdom is the outworking of that um, strange sets of logic that make God fully present in Christ as fully present human being that needs witnesses that stare death down because death cannot determine our ultimate destiny. Yeah, amen. I would simply say, what are you worried about? Bishops, what are you worried about? I'm not asking you to list your worries. It's the opposite. There's nothing to worry about. What are you worried about? Priests, what are you worried about? Christians, what are you worried about? It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that's the, the staring death in the face because there's the gift that both precedes is a part of and succeeds everything we do of our lives. This goes back to my point about being beggars. In many ways, we don't, we don't have anything. What you have it, that you did not receive, and so on and so forth. We are so worried. And the freedom of the gospel, which Paul preaches, is, is utterly essential to understand. Now, of course, people don't. And the rich young man turned away because he couldn't let go. He was worried. But I, this business about not being anxious, I'm, I'm talking about my children dubbed me Mr. Tension. And I'm an anxious person, so I'm not happy about that. But I also, in the face of knowing who I am, I understand what freedom can be. There's nothing to worry about in, in going out, not just in preaching and witnessing and dying, for who God, not for God, but with God. <laughs> We've been hearing about uh, who God is in Christ. And that's where life is. So anyway, what are you worried about? Of course, one of the answers is uh, make sure that the infants you baptize, the parents have read what you're doing to the infant. That's... Uh, I, I think if, if we emphasize that this child is being baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, if you, one, you ought to immerse, but it's a reminder that uh, this is death. This child is now ready to die. You may have fewer infant baptisms, <laughs> but you may have more adult conversions, and then the Baptists will all want to get with us, and it'll, just, it'll be real beautiful. Uh, of, course, of course, it's not infant baptism, it's baptism. That's yeah. right, thank you. Yeah. Amen. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. 
TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join the Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. I think we're ready for some questions from you all. Dr. Howard Watts, you were talking about this idea of using our language about the nation that we find ourselves in differently. So my question has to do with, at what point should we be proud or respectful of the certain freedoms that we are allotted within the nation that we find ourselves in? because there are some nations in this world that do not allow us to be Christian. So at what point should we say that the nation has afforded us a special freedom? Can you comment on that? The current political situation in America has made me recognize that I haven't given appropriate support for the rule of law. The law is a fragile instrument that you can stop some people from killing other people. But it can also be used for some very coercive modes of life. I just think one of the tests of a social order is am I able to live there without supporting the coercive forms of life that seem necessary? I mean, I have, I have one of my thought experiments is how would we have to live in America in a manner that policemen would not have to carry guns? Just a thought experiment like that will give you some handles on perhaps discovering what parts of a social order you may want to continue to support and which parts are not supportable. It's an ongoing discussion. Politics is never done in the abstract. It's done with real people, dealing with real people. And that leads to uh, real confusions, it seems to me. That's the best I can do in terms of responding to that question. He from? Oh, he asked you. <laughs> but, but this isn't a direct response, but I've lived in different places. Bishop Martin Yaboho, who is here from Archbishop from Burundi, we lived together in Burundi in the 1980s. And it was a very different place from the United States, both in terms of the way the laws were ordered and so on. I can't say that being a Christian was any harder in Burundi than in the United States of today. It wasn't any more difficult. We certainly might say, well, it'd be better to reorganize, I don't know, democratic institutions in this way or that way, but I'm not sure it really, in the end, made any difference 
uh, in this case, to the integrity of faith lived or the failure of such integrity. And I do think that for all the gifts of the United States' history of religious freedom and so on and so forth, these are in local, real ways, constantly being compromised in different ways, and they'll come and they'll go. This is not, the United States is not the, the goal of history. <laughs> I mean, we know that, I think. And, and just recognizing that, therefore, tells us that whatever the goal of history is, what we give ourselves to, that's not where it's located in all those things. That can be good or bad, or worse. I mean, it's, it's appropriate to, to make judgments about these things, but it is, not our, it is not the eschaton. And what leads us to the eschaton needs to be identified differently. That's all. If you take something like freedom of religion, freedom of religion has had the result of making sure that privatization of, the, of our religious faith is, becomes a reality which then results in people saying something like, I believe Jesus is Lord, but it's just my personal opinion. And I, I mean, how every positive step will also have a negative. Thank you. I have a question here in the back. Thank you. Dr. Harawas, you said, talking about living in a dangerous time um, in the production of people who have no story except the story they chose when they had no story, and you talked about that, producing people who are willing to kill and die for a sense of belonging because of the deep loneliness that they feel. And maybe this is like a super obvious question, but I wondered if uh, the church... Uh, should be the place where people experience that deep sense of belonging? And if you've seen things that create that sort of community in church or how the church might um, lean prophetically into that deep felt human need that seems to be so lacking. And this is for, for, for both of you, but comes out of what you shared, Dr. Howas. Thank you. The answer is yes. <laughs> it is yes, yeah. I mean, I suppose also part of your question is how do you do that? I mean, how does a church become this place of identity, well, discovery of who we really are already? It's not an invention of an identity. I, I, I'm not sure I actually have a, a simple answer to that. But I do think that's a goal. I mean, any priest, any minister, any, anybody who is seeking to be a, a, an encourager of Christian community, I do think it's true that a Christian needs to be a person, is a person, uh, who I mean, utterly belongs to God, given in Christ Jesus. We are part of him, we're taken by him, we belong to him. And it is a radical dispossession of our own powers that are given over to somebody else's power. That is hard in this society, that's for sure. It's hard for anybody, I guess. But the notion that I have given up my own self-belonging for God's belonging, um, you know, I don't, there's no program that does that. But one, one witnesses to it, and one orders one's preaching and one's engagement towards that reality to display it. Because it's a truth, you see. We don't invent that. We don't construct God belonging, our belonging to God. That is a given from the moment of our conception. Um, and before, <laughs> if we are to believe the scriptures. One of um, the things that we haven't talked about is friendship. And friendship, I think, is a crucial uh, mode of life that means that Christians can be friends even when they don't like one another. And friendship, my hunch is, 
is the most determinative form of evangelism that, that is around. And it takes time to be friends. And God's given us all the time in the world to learn to be friends with one another. And it's, it would be a terrible thing to waste it. And I think it's also friendship is a place where martyrdom is actually drawn out of one. It's learned, it's, it's invited, it's engaged. And we can all perhaps think of friendships where we see that current at work. I say our loyalties uh, to, to the difficult realities of our relationships. And marriage is that too. You'd raised the specter of, of fascism and, and given some really deeply troubling examples, kind of more towards the left end of the spectrum. I was kind of curious if y'all had any response on things like the rise of patriot churches or kind of muscle, Russell Moore's treatment from the Southern Baptist Convention. He's talked a lot recently of how pastors have been having people say that, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is too woke and doesn't work anymore. Or I know a certain cathedral in Loganville, Georgia, where the men's group was pitching how they have an American flag and they say the Pledge of Allegiance before the Bible study and they do political activism. And the one thing for their Bible study I never heard about was what they studied in the Bible. Do you have any kind of, and, and people could have lots of examples on, you know, all over the place, all over the spectrum, the Episcopal Church as well. It just I was wondering if you had any commentary on kind of something along the spectrum of fascism in some of the, that politicization as well. May I just ask, are you, do you mean churches that are tired of wokeness, and so they're sort of saying, we're going to be countercultural for the gospel by going in the complete opposite direction? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Okay. <laughs> I mean, part of, let me just hook onto your sentence, you know, people who say the Sermon on the Mount doesn't work anymore. I mean, just the way, I'm not, this is not aimed at you, but at that phrase. What does it mean to work? And, and that is part, I mean, societies and nations are meant to accomplish certain things, at least from the point of view of their citizens, provide security and the ability to work and to gain food and to raise one's family. There are some basic needs. But to work to build things, to have, I don't know what, the fancy university systems, and we have lots of goals, but the Sermon on the Mount is not about working anything. It's about being part of the life of God. And the older I get, again, I've spent 40 plus years in the ministry, a good bit of which have been filled with scheming, thinking of things to do and how to fix things and to build something. And, you know, they've all been good things as far as I'm concerned. But I realized what a, that was a mistake on my part, in many respects. The whole building mentality, and I'm talking about in the broad sense of the term, is not, yes, that's not the Sermon on the Mount, in nation, nation building or programs of the nation and so on. That's right, it doesn't fit. Doesn't fit the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount isn't about that. It's about our life, not about what we make. And so what do I think about that? I think it's a big mistake and it's, deceit, it's deceitful in the sense of what it teaches people. And it, it's a temptation, in other words, driven probably by some very real and genuine sense of needs and, and, and so on, but it is, a, it is a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. One of the things I think about that I rejoice in being a Christian is it gives me something to do. Uh, otherwise, I'd get in trouble. <laughs> uh, um, and it's interesting what happens when people don't have anything to do. They just play out games on one another. And what, what we have to do at the bottom line is pray and to learn how to do that uh, takes some time. And, but I thank God that I've been given I'm 83. People say, how are you? I say, I'm 83 and above ground. And, 
And when it's very, I, I raise that because I become increasingly aware of the fact that I did not regard my 80-year-old friends as people who needed something to do. <laughs> and I need something to do, like being here doing this. <laughs> You were speaking about martyrdom, and we've been talking about martyrdom and suffering, and we've spoken about it as things that happen to us from the outside. I'm wondering from a catechetical perspective, kind of building from Stanley's observation about baptism as a, as a death, how we, how we catechize, how we, how we teach in the church to explain not necessarily only this sort of martyrdom being imposed from the outside, but this calling of the Christian life to be an ongoing death. Uh, a participation in Christ's death, not just by being crucified or being martyred, but enduring suffering that comes as a natural course of life, how, how we, or that is due to our, our Christian convictions and testimony. I think it goes back to the narrative quality of, of, of our lives and our communal lives that we don't, that we are shaped by particularity of the story of Christ. And the particularity is very important. It's not some general account. It's not accidental that Christianity produced great storytellers. And that seems to me to be part of the catechetical process that is necessary for the, for the work of baptism to be done. One aspect to me is, and this goes to the church's teaching as well, is a, is a growing understanding that the life you've been given is a gift from God. And by life, I mean the whole thing. The beginning, the end, everything in the middle. That's a gift from God. And while I think it's deeply important to try to make distinctions between the suffering that comes from evil and sin and the suffering that, that somehow is woven into the fact that we're just made, I think it's hard to do. And I think in general, it's, it can lead us astray. If we spend too much time saying, what's the good suffering, what's the bad suffering, and which is the one I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to eliminate and resist, and which is the one I'm gonna accept. In the end, we, have to we are given all of it. it but it's not bad, <laughs> that's the point. I mean, I think, you know, Job is a, you know, Job blesses the Lord for what's been given and what's been taken away. And it's the same God, it's the same life, it's the beginning and the end and the middle of it. And it's not to say that we're supposed to go out and search for, for having, you know, bandits in Job's case upon his family and so on, but um, it's done. And, and it's done with and from God, not as the author of sin again, that gets us into a lot of tricky places. But the whole thing, once, you, once it's put in a package, is God's. That's my life. And it's a gift. And, and that's something to teach people. I mean, it goes to young people hating themselves and thinking their bodies are ugly and trying to figure out how to navigate this and that. It goes to that because we are in a culture where our lives are not gifts. There are things to be fabricated, there are things to be applied, there are things to be used, and of course there are things to be thrown away when they are so-called useless. That is, the, that is a story, it's a non-story, that can be filled with the story of the gift that God gives us of, of living at all, and of course being with those who live. And gift, we tend to think of gift as something we receive and... and the problem with that is that we wouldn't exist to receive a gift if we hadn't already been gifted. So the, uh, our very being is gift, not some gift that comes after being. But those are okay to have gifts. 
after being. But the, but the crucial um, word is you've been created. Ephraim, Stanley, can I ask you both for something? Would you pray for us? Not, in the, not right now, but I mean in your prayers. Please keep us in your prayers. And we will pray for you, Thank young you. leaders in the yeah. communion. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Stanley Harawas and the Reverend Dr. Ephraim Radner. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. If you appreciated this episode, take a moment to share with friends or colleagues or leave us a good review so others can find this episode too. In two weeks, we'll go on an epiphany adventure as we encounter Christ in the lovers, mothers, poets, saints, and knights in shining armor of the Middle Ages with author and medievalist Dr. Grace Hammond. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson, and I'm Amber Noel, your host. It's been good to be with you. Peace.